Welcome to the latest on Lightboard Transition. This is PwC's podcast series about the challenges and opportunities of the transition from IBORS to risk-free rates. I'm Laura Dalvidia and throughout the series I'll be talking to Lightboard experts on recent developments and what they mean to the market. I'm really excited about this episode in particular. It's going to be a slightly longer one, but only because it's packed with some really interesting findings from the market. In fact, it's going to be two episodes for the price of one. I'm sitting in our virtual studio with three PwC iPod experts. I've got Akilesh Kera, partner leading our business process and systems change work, Karen Dowd, partner leading our contracts and client outreach work, and Lisa Danani, director and the UK CEO for Lightboard Transition in PwC. They have all recently designed and concluded a global survey and a series of roundtable events on the transition readiness. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, everyone. Um, Lisa, to kick off the conversation today, can you provide our listeners with a bit of background? How did the survey and roundtables come about? Yeah, sure, Laura. Um, the surveys and roundtables are actually part of our regular engagements with clients and the overall industry. Um, this time round, we performed two global surveys, which were deep dives into two specific topic areas. One, which was contracts and client outreach, and the other one was on systems change. The latter being about the practicalities of operationalizing transition. Following these surveys, we brought the banks together and hosted four global roundtables at the beginning of April. You're running the show today, Lisa, so um, over to you. Thank you, Laura. Let's get straight into the key findings. Karen, you led the contract remediation and outreach roundtable. Through the transition, banks have evolved their programs. How has this situation changed now? I was particularly surprised at the roundtables to hear that level of participant engagement on the USD evolution and different approaches to transition. Thanks, Lisa. You're absolutely spot on there. The US dollar transition was a focus of an animated discussion in both of the roundtables. And we could probably spend a whole podcast on that topic alone. But I think it's probably the most visible part of the US dollar transition is the delay on the legacy back book now to June 2023. And that has practical consequences for transition programs across the globe. And on the plus side, they'll have a reduced population of loans and trades to convert um, and have a longer time to engage their clients. But on the more challenging side, and, and this is really the key takeaway from me for the discussion, that the US dollar market continues to evolve in terms of the options that clients have they do not seem to have one answer to the solution we have in the, in the UK. We are talking here about the fact that the ARC recommended rate of simple or a compounded average SOFA with an example five business day look back with no observation shift. So we're saying it, it's not yet a decisive market choice. No, definitely not from the roundtables that we've had. So as you said, the ARC made their recommendation, but the U.S. market participants of a whole have not coalesced around it yet. There are other rates in play. Ameribor is an often quoted example, and we're now starting to see indices evolve. And there are two examples here, Bloomberg and ICE. Thank you, Karen. Um, 
we won't go into depth on these options today, um, given time. Let, let's stick to how this optionality is affecting the way transition is unfolding in different markets. Let's take the UK and US, for example. Yep, happy to. And we'll keep it really simple here. Um, in the sterling markets, the transition is full on for 2021. We've been issuing new products from the end of uh, Q1 this year, and we are aiming to have legacy transition completed by the end of December 2021. The reality in the US market is very different. Now they have an additional two and a half years to focus on new products um, and to develop liquidity in hopefully so far. Um, but remediation on the back book has taken an understandable backseat given the delayed timetable. Most of the banks on our call said they're not going to start transition on the back book in earnest until 2022. But as a result, that has some practical and I would call it back to basics project level issues for these big global banks. The first one is that their sterling and dollar portfolios are moving at different times. So the sterling portfolios are planning for pressure in Q3 and Q4 this year because they have to process a huge volume of contracts, i.e. the papering part of these programs as well as get their processes and systems ready to do BAU processing en masse at the end of this year. On the other side, those with dollar-based portfolios have a double whammy of building optionality, which means they need to operationalize a wide variety of rates into governance, processes, policies, pricing systems, risk management systems, et cetera, you, you get the picture. And while there are variations in all of these approaches, all the banks do seem to have a, a number of common pain points. Those are good points, Karen. Um, let's highlight a few of those common pain points and if you can expand on these. Yeah, sure. Um, picking up on our last, the last part of the conversation, and regardless of currency or jurisdiction, there is quite a lot of paperwork uh, to be processed, both within the bank and obviously dealing with clients. So paperwork, full stop, data, full stop. But I'd like to flip for a moment from the back office to the front office, and, and I think Aklesh is going to pick up on a number of those back office points in a moment. But across the board, all of the banks that we've spoken to are commenting that their clients are just simply not ready to transition their existing products yet. And in the sterling markets, the sense that we have is that the corporates and counterparties understand their options. It's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. Um, they know what they need to do, and they're working through getting their internal and board approvals as they make their decisions. Makes sense. But the question in the sterling then therefore becomes, when are they actually going to respond to banks and how are banks practically going to prepare to cope with the volumes at hand? So on USD, um, it's a probably a good time to remind everyone that USD for new products actually ends in 2021 and banks have a milestone to reduce new stock after June of 2021. So it's not really all about 2023. That's a great point, uh, Lisa, and one that we should we can, should consistently remind our clients about. But to answer your question, it, yeah, there is no difference in the in the U.S. dollar markets. They're also facing challenges to clients being ready to transition and pick up new products, perhaps for different reasons. So the users of U.S. dollar LIBOR currently have a lot more choice in terms of what their alternatives will be, and there's moreover not only no choice, there's no clear market standard. So this really presents a quandary, right? When posed for a client, when posed by a question by a bank about whether they want to put a fallback in place for a loan um, or reprice that loan, the question in both of those uh, circumstances will be, will reprice or fallback to what? And obviously in, in the circumstances around new products, which RFR would you choose? So in some, no one really wants to be the first mover and no one wants to be moving into a market where there's no liquidity. 
level of client engagement ties closely to another common pain point, doesn't it? The conversation on conduct risk and concerns over litigation. We have a podcast specifically on conduct risk, so we won't go into it in too much detail here. What I found interesting to hear was the debate on the level of promoting active transition, a key perspective of the regulators, and on the repricing versus fallback conversation. Both present challenges for banks from a conduct and litigation perspective. Yeah, I agree with you here, Lisa. And, and I think I was quite struck by the pragmatism of the conversation in um, in the banks. And it was really being led, especially by those banks who do engage with the UK FCA, not only the UK banks, obviously, the, the larger international banks. And I think they've realized this isn't just about framework, but it's actually building in the conduct risk into their normal BAU process and policies. But that point on conduct risk also ties to another central theme that we picked up in the roundtables. And that is that the front line is at the center of this transition. And here we're really talking about relationship managers, sales team, and product specialists, et cetera. And many of the banks gave examples at the round table of how they're supporting their teams with the transition and how that support also helps to mitigate conduct and litigation risk. Those two points are closely tied together. So Karen, um... Are there actually other standout points for you? Yep, I have one or two. I think um, from my side, what was really clear from the banks on our call is that the banks are really open for business. So this isn't this isn't just a regulatory change. It is a change in the way the banks are planning to operate. We heard some really exciting examples of innovation. One of the banks on the call referenced uh, that they were able to create a complex hedge loan where a client wanted to use two different risk-free rates with quite different conventions and constructs. We also heard from some of the banks who work in syndicates that when they started the process, they were all thinking they would process or have one rate as an answer. But now that they're up uh, into the process engaging with clients, they're rolling up their sleeves to be sure that they won't be left out of large deals because they aren't ready or willing to support different conventions. And clearly there are operational challenges here, but it's quite exciting to see this level of innovation in the market. Yeah, quite exciting. Um, That sounds really positive. It's clear from these conversations that the banks have been working on transition for some time and have invested significant money in these programs for client outreach and contract remediation. Have reusable assets or improvements been made? Yeah, I mean, we covered this in the survey uh, responses themselves and and a little bit less so in the roundtables. The results are mixed, actually, based on the data. So 90% of the bank respondents said that their firms created at least one reusable assets, per se. Um, standardized legal docs um, effectively was the highest um, the highest rating, 50% by, by the respondents. Digitized contract inventories uh, received almost the same number of choices, so over half, almost half the banks as well. Well, that's really good news for the legal and doc operations teams then, isn't it, really? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, but closer to the front office, things are a little bit a little bit less exciting. So only about a third of the banks uh, in our survey suggested they had clearer product strategies or offerings, or even had improved client relationships so far. And again, this was this was done in January, pre the number of the evolutions in the U.S. market. And perhaps this is just a reflection of the stage of the transition. I'll be curious to to do a survey again in 12 months, really to see how the lessons learned from the sterling markets have evolved and and where the U.S. dollar markets are as they're closer to their transition end date. Implications of this seems to be a large portion of the contracts and remediation work will be done manually or tactically, which is probably a good um, way to hand over to Akalish and the systems and process topic. 
Sorry to t stop you here, but um, after hearing all that, it's going to be an interesting to see how the banks will be operationally ready. Do you do you agree, Lisa? Yes, Laura. The the complexity is whether this all hangs together front to back. I you have the front office thinking it is a client issue because they are not moving, and yes, if they all move together, then there's going to be a significant resource challenges. But the big challenge is going to be on how the data attributes for the different term rates, conventions, and various nuances by asset classes get captured, and also how this flexibility is built into downstream systems. The question really is whether the ops and IT teams understand these requirements and are building and ready building in these flexibility especially if clients are expected to engage in Q3, Q4, which is what we heard, and there is a squeeze for this development to take place by the end of the year, especially if whole portfolios need to move at the same time. That's going to be quite a squeeze. Akalish, what do you think? I completely agree, Lisa, that there is a squeeze. The focus is on operationalizing the move to risk-free rates. From, there, from this perspective, there is a lot of manual work being done including contract reviews, tracking of fallbacks, manual implementation of controls, as well as manually carrying out active transitions. The question is how comfortable operations and tech folks would feel about implementing this correctly. At the same time, setting up the infrastructure for new risk-free rate-based transactions. For fallbacks specifically, for products such as bilateral loans, they may not have fallbacks so banks would need to reach out to clients and negotiate the agreements. The question again is how do they automate it and implement these nuances of adhering or not adhering to protocol. In addition, these products uh, such as third-party securities, FRNs, where data from third-party reference providers is not yet robust, or some of them are not even there yet, that would need to be worked around. Yes, um, I totally agree. That's really very true. Um, on, on the topic of collecting data attributes, triggers and conventions and distributing this to the operations teams could be tricky as it can't, as it can't actually happen at once um, with perhaps derivatives being an exception. Absolutely. Correct, Lisa, again. So a mass collection or distribution would be a difficult one for loans. There may be some bilateral loans, for example, that do not fall under the protocol. So the banks would need to go through these agreements one by one. And how do they migrate these uh, legacy LIBOR trades? Another complication on the lending side is that lots of loans have switch clauses that operate on future dates, but prior to cessation. To operationalize these, they would need to capture all their contracts that will need to move ahead of cessation. Another challenge is uh, with the central counterparty migrations, as there's quite a lot of scripting which would be needed. If a client comes in, for example, with a portfolio, like a large asset manager, uh, and they want to do a bulk migration, tooling is needed. And if you have lots of clients such as these coming in quarter three, quarter four of this year, 2021, then this would be an operational capacity challenge for the technology and ops folks in the banks who would need to prioritize these against other competing demands. Correct. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, 
I guess you also have to factor in the different conventions being discussed across the different jurisdictions and how will this be managed and implemented into systems, especially for lending solutions? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Quite a few of these conventions uh, are yet to be adopted. There are diff difficulties across products and across jurisdictions. UK, for example, has adopted uh, compounding in arrears with a five-year look back. But the US has several conventions that can be used. The question is around the level of convergence that would need to happen. The systems change in education effort in this case would be significant and systems would need to be flexible enough to deal with these different conventions. So other than the challenges mentioned above, um, what do you consider are the biggest roadblocks to systems readiness? Active transition, uh, transition migration and the timing for these various changes would be the bigger challenges as I would see it. With clients expected to engage later this year with all the variables that are needed to be factored in, then there is the additional complexity to ensure synchronization of interest rate calculations, payment dates, rollover dates, etc., and aligning the transition at the appropriate dates and times based on the nuances on asset classes and then different conventions. It's a lot of complexity that needs to be got to be taken care of. This needs full robust analysis by operations technology to ensure that there is a continuous dialogue and that the correct data attributes are implemented. In addition, there needs to be robust controls in place to ensure inaccuracies are immediately picked up and this will not have a material impact to exposures or on reporting. Aklesh, um, earlier you mentioned the concerns that banks have around data reference suppliers, and we heard that mentioned quite a lot during the roundtables. Um, how are banks dealing with similar situations with some of the other big vendors? Yeah, so there are some big names out there that are lagging, uh, especially given the different conventions we spoke about. In general, banks uh, think that these data providers will get there, but currently are hampered by the different market conventions which are playing out and essentially their wait uh, and watch scenario to see if there is any convergence that comes through. They don't want to build out too many options and then see all this change uh, over a period of few months. They want to build once and with limited variations. However, th this doesn't put banks in a good place given the timelines are near. Some banks have started implementing manual tactical solutions to accommodate this but there are questions about how robust these controls would be uh, around the solutions that they implement to address all the nuances that we discussed earlier. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the two different surveys and four roundtables that we hosted in April. Just taking a step back, what is our read across from all the sessions? As there seems to be some interesting observations from the participants in terms of their state of readiness when discussing with the folks in the contract session versus those that were present in the system session. Karen, what's your observations? I totally agree, Lisa. Both the survey responses and the conversations at the roundtables reflect a really simple fact. The LIBOR transition is a substantial and complex undertaking for all the reasons that we chatted about earlier and I think Aklesh um, eloquently outlined just now. But the reality is we are in crunch time 
so in practice, the key takeaways from the banks, and particularly those that um, we would consider to be more market leaders in this topic, um, having your business leadership at the table is key. You need to be able to take decisions quickly that affect clients, but also they have the ability to influence how the rest of the budgets are spent on tech and ops. And gearing up and maintaining support for those frontline individuals, i.e. the client-facing relationship managers, sales or sales trader and product specialist is also going to be critical. However, it's not just about the front end and the clients. It's about making all the systems and processes work together. And it was really clear, at least in the contracts roundtables, where there we're, we're talking about remediation and, and, and theory paper, it is also about a data challenge. And it's a real practical challenge for banks to have, and you can pick your language, a front-to-back view or an end-to-end -end view or joined-up thinking that needs to be in place to have all those options ready, not only for contracts, but for systems. Right, thanks, Karen. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, given, as you said, it is crunch time. Banks, uh, in my opinion, need to start thinking about doing a road test or a walkthrough of at least one of their products across scenarios to get comfortable that everyone around the table, from relationship managers, front office, product owners, operations and technology in particular are talking the same language and everything hangs together quite often what we see is that business requirements developed by front office product owners while it is clearly understood up front but by the time they make their way to the system folks there is less clarity on why additional functionality or extra flexibility is needed to be built in and quite often due to cost time pressures these bills can be dropped without circling back to the front office teams it is important to see that everything flows through correctly and then there's a strong feedback loop across the program that's a great place to stop thank you all for such an informative discussion my final question to you lisa before we are out of time how can our listeners find out more on this well, Laura, um, we're in the process of updating our LIBOR transition webpage, so it will include some of the highlights from the survey and some of the points that we've been discussing today. We also post our bi-weekly market updates on there, which gives you the latest information on the latest industry developments. All our LIBOR leaders share this information through their LinkedIn. So connecting with us on social media is another way of just staying in tune. Thanks, Lisa. It's a wrap. Many thank yous to our listeners as well. I hope you found the conversation useful. And please let us know if you have any questions. You can also subscribe to our future episodes on how Lightboard Transition affects models, corporates, buy-side, tax, accounting, and other topics. But for now, that's all from me. Thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm.